Hey everybody, James Knoll here. I am just checking in before the final episode of The Hive. This is the 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 final thing. It's the the very last chapter in the entire book. Um and without going into too much detail about it, I just wanted to let you guys know that in order to create this, I wanted to create a a weird, strange, unsettling coda to the entire tale. Something that would would leave everybody happy and disturbed and uh, just satisfied that the uh, the story was over. I didn't quite feel like ending the hive with last week's episode was enough. So I needed one more thing to say. Um, that said, uh, next week I'm going to embark on about 14 to 18 to 22 weeks of short stories. Uh, these are all the short stories that I have written. Um, and uh, the first episode in that one is going to be called, uh, well, is called, under the Rocks, and that one will be broken up into two parts, I believe. Um, and then after that, we're going to go through all of these short stories, all of which can be found either in uh, the Mad Tales book, uh, which I do have. I have produced that. That's 16 short stories and three novels. Uh, you can also find 13 of them or 14 of them um, in uh, a standalone short story collection called 13 Tales. And then there's going to be new ones that I'm producing for my new collection of short stories called The Wounded, The Sick, and The Dead. And if anybody wants to pick that up, please contact me at uh, www.jamesknoll.net. That's where you can buy them. You can get them digitally, uh, and they'll download right to your computer. Uh, you can order a signed paperback for me, among other things. Um, and that's pretty much it. I hope you enjoy this final episode of The Hive, and I hope you stick around uh, for the next couple of months to listen to all those really, really cool short stories. Klaus. This here's the last story I'm ever going to tell y'all. I promise. Some of you, well, you'll be disappointed. Some of you won't. But make no mistake about it, this is it. Now look, it ain't you, it's me. We shared some good times together, but I ain't telling you this because I'm mad at you or so you'll change or do stuff different. I just feel like this is the end of the road for us. All of which is an expensive way of saying I ain't got no more stories to tell. Except this one. Four months toward the end of my sophomore year in high school, a few months before the hive landed, a boy showed up at school that nobody had ever seen before. His name was Billy Ruger. He was a weird-looking little guy with stumpy legs and a little head and piercing blue eyes that always seemed to be watering. Made him look like he was on the verge of a 24-hour nervous breakdown. If he'd showed up when we were in elementary school, our teachers would have made a big deal out of it, you know, like, everybody welcome the new kid because he's new and he ain't got no training yet and such. 
But high school is a different animal altogether. And teachers didn't have time for that kind of mess. They taught over 100 kids a day, most of whom didn't give two shakes for school, their education, and the people around them. Introducing a new kid to everyone in that situation was bound to make a bad day worse. So usually they just said, sit over there, shut up, and get your work done. And that's exactly what Billy did. Well, the first two days at least. Over the next couple of weeks, it became alarmingly clear to the rest of us that he was a bit touched. He looked like he was paying attention in class. His eyes followed the teachers as they taught. He took out his books and paper and pencils when he was told, but nothing else. If a teacher called on him, his eyes would dart to the blank page in front of him. If they told him to get his work done, he put his head on his desk and covered it with his arms. As many of you who've been to high school know, that ain't the kind of behavior that made a body a hit with the other kids. Not in the way that was beneficial to said body. Billy got his pretty good. Started out innocent enough. Lunch money stole, tripped in the commons, kicked me signs. Each time he was mugged, each time he found himself flat on his face, each time they humiliated him, he didn't retaliate. He went hungry, he lay still until they left, he let them laugh. I tried to talk to him about it. One morning I seen some football player take his breakfast bun, and I made up my mind to try and help. We got let go early because a snowstorm might have been coming. Spotsylvania wasn't particularly known for its winter weather preparedness, so even if it smelled like snow, the whole county shut down for a month. I caught him up as he was heading to the bus. It wasn't easy. Billy Ruger loped and ducked and ran through the crowd like he was trying to win a race. I had to put on my soccer legs, and I still didn't catch up to him until he was almost on the bus. I had to jump out in front of him to make him stop. Hey, Billy Ruger, hold up a sec. He skidded to a halt and hung his head and looked at the ground. I was breathing pretty heavy. Dang, you're fast. You ever think of joining the track team? He shook his head hard and fast, and that's when I noticed his bare arms. It was the middle of January, but he didn't even have a long sleeve shirt on, let alone a jacket. And his shoes were all ratty and his pants had holes in them. Look, Billy, I gotta tell you something. I saw what that football player done to you this morning. I didn't know a person's head could have hung even lower than his already was, but it did. He seemed to shrink, grow smaller. You can't let those guys get to you. You gotta stand up for yourself or it'll just get worse. Billy's lips started moving, but I couldn't hear anything he said. You listening to me? Nothing. Okay, well, look, Billy, be careful, okay? I went to clap him on the back, and he flinched. Sorry, I didn't mean... Don't touch me, he snapped, and he dashed away. I watched him bobble up to his bus, his backpack three times bigger than his whole torso. He had to use the railing to pull himself in, and when he did, all the kids in the bus erupted in jeers. The next two days, a blizzard dropped over 20 inches of snow on us. We were out for two weeks. When we got back, I saw Billy Ruger get off the bus and run into school looking as tiny as ever. Even though the snow had melted considerable, it still hadn't warmed up more than over 40 degrees. But Billy Ruger wasn't wearing nothing more than his usual ensemble. A ratty t-shirt, worn Wranglers with holes in the knees, and a pair of Converse sneakers that might have been white at some point. It occurred to me that he moved like a shadow, slipping in and out of the columns that lined the entrance, Hiding in the wake of the larger groups of kids, I watched until he disappeared into the side door, and even then I didn't actually see him go in, just the flick of a single dirty shoe before the door clicked shut. I wouldn't see Billy Ruger until fourth period, right before lunch, or I wasn't supposed to. In the middle of second period, world history with Mr. Johnson, yuck, vice principal only stuck his head in the door and said, Mrs. Johnson? We all giggled. Mrs. Johnson's my wife, Mr. Johnson said, or my mother. Only didn't even skip a beat. Can I see Jet for a moment? I started to get up when he added, 
You can bring your things with you. If it was dead silent when I left the room, it was even quieter as I walked down the hall. I didn't really ever get in trouble, so I didn't really know what to do or what to say. Mr. Olney sauntered in front of me, his heels clicking on the tile. He and I knew each other okay. His daughter was on the field hockey team, and he was often one of the chaperones. What's going on, Mr. O? It's a sensitive matter, Jet. Well, can't you tell me even a little bit? I'm sorry, I can't. But what'd I do? He didn't answer, and I racked my brain. Is this about the tampons in the girls' bathroom? What? Never mind. He led me down the hall and into the office and told me to sit down in the chair outside Principal Lee's door before he went inside. Not two seconds later, he poked his head back out and said, Come on in, Jet. Daddy was in there, looking about as awkward as a 42-year-old pot farmer who barely graduated from high school could look. Hey, Sugar Bean, he said. Don't call me Sugar Bean. Okay. A police officer scowled in the corner behind the principal's desk. I didn't think he was scowling at me necessarily, but that was just the way his face looked. I unslung my backpack and put it on the carpet next to the seat next to Daddy. What's this all about? Principal Lee cleared his throat. throat) Uh, Miss Jett, I want to begin by telling you that you're perfectly safe here. Nothing bad is going to happen to you, not while you're in this office. I laughed and looked at Daddy, but he didn't seem to find it amusing. Uh, I know. Daddy, what's going on? Amanda, just answer his questions, okay? What questions? Miss Jett, Mr. Lee said. Do you know of a student here by the name of, he looked down at some papers he was holding, William Ruger? You mean Billy? The new kid? Yes, that, that would be him. Sure, I know who he is. We're not friends or nothing, but what happened? Is he okay? Suddenly, every adult in the room looked interested. The cop even added a frown to his scowl. Principal Lee leaned forward and templed his hands on his desk. Why do you ask that? Well, I don't know. Them other kids like to bully him is all. Bully him? Yeah. He's a little runt and he don't stand up for himself, so they take his lunch money and push him down, you know, the usual. And you say other kids do this? Yeah, the jocks and the waste toys and the populars and such. But not you. What? No way! Did you ever approach Billy and talk to him? Yeah, once. When? Before the break? Why? I looked at Daddy, and he nodded. I thought he might need a little push, is all. Push? Yeah, a pick-me-up. Some coaching. I don't know if you noticed, but Billy don't look like he got much going on at home. Yes, we know. Miss Jett, did you tell Billy to... He looked down again. Be careful? I laughed out loud. (laughs) Yeah! So you admit it. Why wouldn't I? Because you were threatening him. Threatening him? I was worried about him. He was getting beat up every day. I told him to stand up for himself. Principal Lee was writing on a notepad. Stand up for himself? Yeah, I told him that it was just going to get worse if he didn't fight back. Yes, yes, that's what he said. It got real quiet and tense, and I didn't know why. Outside, I could hear the phones ring and the secretaries talking. Mr. Lee was staring at me. Mr. Lee, Vice Principal Olney said, do you mind? Principal Lee gestured with his hands as if to say, go ahead. Amanda, Olney said, can you tell us exactly what you said to Billy that day? Sure, I said, you got to stand up for yourself or it'll just get worse. And when he didn't say anything because he don't never say nothing to nobody, I told him to be careful. And that's it. Then he ran to his bus. The tension in the room collapsed. I think I understand now, Principal Lee said. Good. You mind explaining it to me? 
He'd already stood up. I'll let your father do that on the way home. Home? But I got practice. Not today, Manda, Daddy said. Come on. What? This ain't fair. I didn't do nothing. Manda, I'll explain everything in the car. Mr. Lee, Mr. Olney, thank you. He nodded at the cop. I waited until we got out of the parking lot before I let him have it. What was that all about? What's going on? You know I got training. Manda, that boy Billy brought a gun to school. A gun? Like a hunting rifle? I don't mean to bust your bubble, Daddy, but this here is Spotsylvania County and a handgun, Manda. Brought it in with him, hid it in his backpack. Somebody saw him take it out and put it in his locker. Oh, so what does that have to do with me? Mr. Lee said that when they questioned him, the only thing he'd say was your name, over and over. When they pressed him some more, he said you told him it was going to get worse and that he'd better be careful. But, yeah, I know. We all know that now. Is he? They took him away, Manda. So why am I the one in trouble? Well, you ain't. They just wanted you to go home in case something else bad happened. Well, like what? Ain't he gone? Yeah, but they're just taking precautions. I let the information sink in. It was a lot to process. I know I've told y'all several times that I ain't a whiner, but this was all new to me, and I was just a kid, and all I could see was the look on Billy Ruger's face when I tried to pat him on the back, pure terror and hate. And then all I could see was that same face coming up to me in the hallway and me saying, Hey, Billy Ruger, before he blasted my face off. I couldn't help it. I started to cry. Not out and out bawling, but tears started to roll down my cheeks. Daddy, was he really going to kill me? I don't know what he was going to do, Amanda. I'm just glad they caught him before he did it. I didn't mean to scare him. I wanted to help him. Oh, Amanda, this ain't your fault. That boy has a lot of problems. Apparently, this wasn't the first time he'd done something like this. He near beat some boy to death the last school he was in. Oh, yeah. Still didn't make me feel better about it. I never heard a word about Billy Ruger again. It was a relief, I guess, but every now and then I'd think about him and wonder if he was going to come back. It was an unpleasant way to experience life, worrying if some crazy kid would show up and try to kill me. Not many other girls could say that was how they spent their teenage years. Kept me up at night. At least until the hive showed up. And the moon cast my shadow on the snow. When the sun rose in the morning, I got down on the knees and I wept for the beauty of it all. We spent the first three weeks of January traveling around the countryside, killing off any Macs and spare highs we came across. Or I should say we were trying to. Most of the Macs we found were hollow shells of meat and gristle lying in the grass or curled up on the ground. We thought they was dead, but of course the hive couldn't let them go that easy. But it left them alive, maybe even aware somehow. I knew this because more than once I seen their eyes roll up when I straddled their bodies, pleading with me, I hope, to put them out of the hell they were in. So I did. It was a brutal, messy job. Didn't help that it was cold out. 
Colder than a devil's pecker, as my daddy used to say, pardon my vulgarity. Hard to believe that two months before it felt downright tropical. But I guess killing off the main hive set the world back to rights, and with a powerful sneeze, too. We returned to the Cortland colony sore, tired, hungry, and ready for a nice long nap. All except Timmy Carter. Timmy Carter had gone and broke his foot. He took it manly enough, even if he did limp all the way home. Timmy Carter, you might be big, but you're a fragile little thing, ain't you? Very funny, Amanda. No, seriously, seems like every couple of months one of your bones cracks in half. He didn't talk to me much after that, and when we got back, it was straight to the clinic for him. You take it easy, Timmy Carter, I told him. Leave saving the world to the big girls. He gave me a two-finger salute, and I thought he was really angry until I started to turn away and he grabbed my wrist. What? I asked. He opened his mouth, seemed to think better of it, and closed it tight. Timmy Carter, you gonna say something or just stand there imitating the fish? He pressed his lips together like what he was about to say was real difficult, but if I'm being honest, he looked like he was trying not to fart. I had something planned, he said, but... Damn. What's up? Just say it. Okay. Okay. He looked me in the eye. I'm glad it was you, Amanda. I'm glad it was you. I let that hang in the air for a while, and I couldn't decide whether or not to make fun of him for it, but in the end, I softened. Thank you, Timmy Carter, I said, and I went in for a hug. I'm glad it was you, too. The very next morning, the second strangest kid I ever met in my life showed up at the front door of the Cortland Colony. I woke up early because I had to pee, put on my shirt and my jeans and my belt and my knife and the screwdriver I'd taken to carrying around because I liked the idea of stabbing someone with a screwdriver for some reason, and shuffled up to find a suitable place to do my business. I didn't like to use the facilities closest to the commons. Always seemed a mite bit pedestrian to me. And open. I prefer to take my morning constitutional alone, you see. And there were only two places in the building that afforded that kind of abulatory privacy, the commode in the clinic and the privy in the principal's office. The commode in the clinic was occupado that morning, but the privy in the principal's office was free and clear, so that's where I went. Alani didn't like us to waste water on something we could have done out in the woods, but when the hives were still out there, nobody wanted to risk copping a squat with all them tentacles squirming around, so she tolerated it. Now that the hives were gone, and even though she kept making noise about stopping the practice, we were just too used to it to stop. So I did what I needed to do and was walking out into the main office when I saw a figure standing on the other side of the front door. I watched it, wondering if it was one of the guards or someone who'd gotten locked out. It didn't move for a full minute, and darker thoughts came to my mind. Another Mac, maybe? How to get through all the gates? And the roadblock? Sighing, I searched my belt for my screwdriver and ambled out of the office. Maybe this be the first time I get to stab somebody with it. I imagine that I'd have to get used to that kind of thing, I guess. Stray Max and all. The fact that this one was still mobile was different, but after the year I had, let me just put it this way. If I was going to have to take out some Max every now and then, with or without a screwdriver, well, then I was going to have to take some Max out every now and then. All right, dummy, I said, yanking the door open. You picked the wrong. It wasn't a Mac. None of the Macs I'd come across over the past three weeks were as well put together as whoever this was. Well, well put together in relationship to the average Mac. It was a boy. He was short and fat, with a big head and thin hair and stumpy legs. His hands barely peeked out of the cuffs of his wool coat, and his brown pants looked like they was made by an angry mama. In fact, now that I inspected him closer, I noticed that his coat had hooks and eyes instead of buttons, and his dusty boots had brass buckles instead of laces, and his pants stopped at the tops of his ankles, and he was wearing a silk cravat, and he was holding a wide, flat-brimmed hat in one hand, and his curly bangs were uneven, and the rest all cut wonky, and I thought, what a strange little person this is. Hello, I said. 
The boy gave me a wary, childish smile, but nothing else. Are you lost? I asked. Now, what kind of question was that? Of course he was lost. Ain't nobody who looked like that really belonged anywhere, not these days at least. Letting them in didn't seem to be prudent, not the events of the past year or any barometer. I tried another approach. You got any people? That seemed to rattle something loose. He patted a fold in his coat and produced two letters that had been pinned to the fabric, holding them out to me like he was offering a million-dollar bill. I took it and read the front. The first was addressed to the captain of the Cortland Colony with the heading from the Blue Ridge border slash unknown slash date redacted. The second one was blank. The envelopes were old and worn and water-stained, like he'd been traveling with them for a long, long time. Huh, I said. Did you write these? I don't know. You don't know if you wrote these? I don't know. His voice was neither high nor low, which surprised me. I thought for sure he was maybe 11 or 12 years old, but the tenor of his words revealed otherwise. What are you, 15, 16? I don't know. Is there anything you do know? He stared at me, held my eyes, and turned his attention to the space over my left shoulder and left it there. I tapped the edge of the letters against my palm. If I let this little freak in, and he ended up being some kind of attack idiot sent by the last vestiges of the hive, I'd never forgive myself. But I couldn't leave him standing out in the cold, neither, not the way he was dressed, so I let him in and set him down in the chair in one of the offices. I'm going to close the door now and go get some people. You stay here. Don't move, don't touch nothing, just stay here, you hear? I want to go home. Home? Why'd you come here, then? I want to go home. Where's home? I don't know. All right, listen. I want to go home! I want to go home! Holy moly. Resisting the urge to smack him, I got the heck out, making sure to close and lock the door behind me. I took one more look through the window before I left. He was sitting in the chair, staring off into space. Alani read the letters while sitting in the main office. We were just outside the door of the room I put him in. The one without an address simply said the boy's name was Klaus Richter and that he had been born strange. The one with the address was from a poor farmer from Bristol, who apparently found Klaus on his doorstep 16 years before and raised him as his own. I done my best, the letter read. He ain't the brightest, but he ain't the stupidest neither. He wants to be a magician, just like his father. Dang, Alani, I said. You think they knew anything about anything that was going on these past 12 months? Beats me. What do you want to do with the kid? What kid? Oh, crap. Frankie. She must have snuck up on us. Hey, Frankie, I said. You're up early. She ignored me. What kid? What are you two talking about? Amanda found a boy out front. Found a boy? Where out front? Under the overhang. Well, how did he get that far? How am I supposed to know that? She came over and peered in the window. Why did you let him in? I couldn't let him stay out there, Frankie. He could be a spy or a plant or... Spy for who? The hive is dead. We don't know who else is out there, Amanda. People are desperate. We have resources. I opened my mouth to argue, but she was right. I'd even thought the same thing. I just like to argue with her. I clenched my jaw. Alani tried to cut the tension. Calm down, Frankie. We're only trying to figure out who he is and what to do with him. I know exactly what to do with him. Set him loose. We're not going to do that, I said. Both Alani and Frankie said, we're not? No, he ain't right. We might as well kill him. I held out the letter for Frankie to read. She scanned it and shook her head. Then she thrust it right back at me. Exactly. He isn't right, and we have a pile of problems of our own to deal with here without adding him to it. 
He's right there, Frankie. I don't care. He could be dangerous. That went on and on, all three of us making good arguments and bad arguments. And then it got old, and nobody was backing down, so the discussion kind of petered out and we stopped. So that's it? Frankie said, staring hard at Alani. Nothing's been decided, Frankie. We should bring it up to everyone else. Take a vote. A vote? I said. We're going to vote every time someone finds this place? That's not what I meant. Good, because that would be crazy. We've got to come up with something for when this happens again. A, a rule or a law or a protocol. I agree, Frankie said. Now it was Alani and me who both said, You do? It's a good idea. We can't let everybody who stops by in. I say let's lock the doors for good. That's not what I meant. Not everybody agreed with her, at least not at first. We held a vote with all the adults left in the colony, and in regards to letting people in, the vote went 50-50. Half of us said no more. The other half said we need to build our ranks. In regards to Klaus, I won 15-6. to six. He was allowed to stay, but only if we had another vote in the spring. Until then, he had to prove he wasn't a drag on our resources. If he was, he'd be kicked out. If he wasn't, well, I don't know. Maybe he could stay? We weren't clear on that point, even though it was implied. There was one condition, though. He had to stay in that room for a week so we could observe his behavior. I thought that was too much, but didn't really have a choice. The people who voted in favor of giving him a chance wouldn't have voted in favor of giving him a chance without it. It's only a week, Amanda, Alani said. A week locked in a tiny office. Can I ask you something? Sure. Why do you care so much? You don't even know this guy. Frankie isn't wrong. He could be dangerous. I know. From what you told me about what happened on your farm, what about it? Um, I guess you'd be more likely to agree with Frankie on this one. I thought about it, and then I chuckled. <laughs> it's spied, isn't it? I said. It's hard for me to agree with someone like her. You don't like her, I get it. But she's right. Alani raised her eyebrows. What Uncle Zeus did was wrong. He was the worst kind of man. And if them hive balls hadn't come along when they did, he'd have killed us all. I should have shot him dead the moment I saw him. Alani nodded as if she knew what I was talking about. But I don't want to be like that. We got a chance here. We got a chance to decide what we want to be, and, and I don't want to be like Uncle Zeus. I won't be like Uncle Zeus. Even if it means some of us will suffer? Who said that's for certain? It's a possibility. I shrugged and started off for the kitchen. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Where are you going? I'm going to go bring him something to eat. Poor thing looks half starving. I fixed him up a plate of corn on the cob and a cut-up pepper and one hard-boiled egg. When I opened up the door to the office, he was asleep on the floor, curled up like it was the most comfortable thing in the world. I put the tray down next to him and shook his shoulder. Wake up, Klaus. He stirred and eyed me. Then he sat up and put his back against the wall and stared at the ground at his feet. You hungry? Yes. I towed the tray toward him. He looked at it. What is that? What, this? Corn and peppers. That's an egg. He picked up the egg and sniffed it. Put it down. Did the same with the corn and the peppers. I thought you said you were hungry. I am. So eat. He stared at the corner. All right, well, here's the deal, Klaus. You can stay for a while, but you got to prove yourself, okay? He stared at the corner some more. I ain't gonna lie to you neither. There's some people who don't want you here. Frankie? How'd you know her name? I mean, I'm not saying it's she's the one. What's that supposed to mean? Frankie reminds me of a man. What man? 
I slept in a cell with no windows. The floor was straw. Every morning I woke to a plate with bread on it and a glass of water. Sometimes the water was bitter and made me sleep. When I woke up, my hair was shorter. He looked wonderingly at his fingers. I didn't know what to say. All right then, Klaus, I said, back into the door. Somebody will be by later to take you to the bathroom. Bathroom? Yeah, one of the guys. Not you? No, I don't think you'd be... Co you can go now. All right. I closed the door and locked it. When I looked back in the window, he was still staring at his fingers. And my heart was so heavy But my soul it burned For I knew, I knew it had to be done Shake down the nations We will watch towers fall As we hear and we listen to a call Since it was only a few weeks past our last hive hunt, Lonnie still had us on war protocol. Nobody out of the building after dark, nobody out of the fence line ever, unless on a raid, doors locked at night, and my favorite, 24-hour guards inside and out. With our manpower non-existent, that meant everybody had to take a turn. She doubled us up for safety. I would have preferred partnering with Timmy Carter, but Timmy Carter was laid up with a broken foot, so, well, I got, look, I didn't get Frankie. You don't need to worry about that. If Lonnie had been dumb enough to make that decision, I would have flat out refused. No way I was going to be anywhere near that snake rolling around in the dark with a gun. No. Instead, I got some old hippie who called himself Burroughs. Burroughs was tall and stooped and had short hair and a clean-shaved face and a lot of luggage under his eyes. He was so tall that his legs looked like they was all knee and shin. And he loved guns. I wouldn't have thought a self-professed hippie would have loved firearms so much. But Burroughs' affection for him could have been immortalized by William Shakespeare, maybe in a sonnet. How do I love to blow heads off with thee? Let me count the ways. Burroughs loved guns more than he loved anybody, even himself. It's weird to say this out loud, but I think he loved guns even more than Daddy did. Daddy thought of them as tools. He used them to hunt or put down a dying animal or for personal protection. Burroughs, though, his feelings for his arsenal, because that's what he had, his own private arsenal, bordered on obsession. It's all he ever talked about, which is why I didn't talk to him all that much. If I did, he didn't even pretend to try and carry on a conversation. He'd wait until I was done with my end, and then he'd start talking about the difference between an automatic and a semi-automatic, or why there was no such thing as an assault rifle, or why, in his opinion, the M16 was a vastly underrated weapon in comparison to the AK-47. Once, when I pointed out that the AK had a kind of exotic appeal, Burroughs cut me off and said, 
Never underestimate the ignorance of an American. Timmy Carter was standing next to me when it happened, and when he saw my mouth working but no words coming out, he burst out laughing. Burroughs plowed forward regardless. And before you call me a right-wing nut job, know this. If you call me so much, I'll introduce you to Louise. I'm as pink as a fellow traveler as you'll ever meet. Who's Louise? Timmy Carter asked. I was too late with my don't ask. Burroughs was one of the few people who dared to stand eye to eye with Timmy Carter. And right then, stand eye to eye with him he did. Come by my room later on tonight, big boy, and I'll give you a personal introduction. Timmy Carter watched him walk away, a curious expression on his face. Did that old man just come on to me? Don't take it personal, Timmy Carter. He says that to everybody who asks who Louise is. Burroughs and I had a deal. He took the first half of the night and I took the second. That way we didn't have to spend any more time around each other than absolutely necessary. Alani would have threw a fit if she found out, but she never did because she was asleep. I don't know what Burroughs did when it was my turn to wander around the school and pretend like it was important, and I didn't want to know. When it was his turn to do it, I holed up in the school store, locked the door, wedged a chair under the knob, and decked out on a double-wide sleeper couch I confiscated from one of the football coaches' offices. And that's exactly where I was the night of the day I found Klaus, snoozing comfortably in my regular position, flat on my back, hands clasped over a pillow on my chest, right leg bent out with the bottom of my foot against my left knee. Sometime real late, I started awake in the pitch black, certain I'd heard the report of a gun. I was on my feet and out the door lickety-split, stumbling around in the commons trying to get my bearings and draw my gun without running into one of the cots we'd left out or a lunch table or one of the columns. By the time I remembered I had a flashlight, I'd already banged my shin twice and tripped over something hard and knobbly sticking out of the floor. I snapped my walkie-talkie out of my pocket and said, Burrows! Burrows! Was that you? Shouts rang out upstairs. Doors slammed and beams of light skittered all over the walls. Alani's voice came over the walkie-talkie. Amanda, what's going on? How the heck should I know? Burroughs must have shot at something. Well, where is he? That's what I'm trying to find out. Why aren't you two together? We split up. It wasn't necessarily a lie. Where are you? In the commons heading toward the main gym. Stay there. Wait for me. Another shot rang out and I involuntarily half crouched. Sounded like it was coming from the gym. The hell I will, I said, and I jogged toward the noise. When I turned the corner with the trophy case on the wall, my light flashed across a figure standing near the lockers, and my heart stopped as fast as my feet. Who is that? I barked, training my light and my gun the way I'd seen it done on television, and... Holy moly. Klaus? I inched forward, keeping the light and the gun on him. He stood there, hands in the air, squinting. How'd you get out? The man. What man? He pointed at the doors to the main gym. Something's happening. The doors have been propped wide open. Another strange development. We usually left them closed. It was a safety thing. Fires and invading aliens having a harder time getting around and all. The gym was even darker than the commons. A great big black void. Sure, I'd spent the last year hunting and killing the kinds of things that would hide in the shadowy folds of that void, waiting to suck me in or armbar my throat or sink its fangs. It sure had been weeks since I'd seen something like that, but that didn't mean I was a little afraid, and it didn't mean that there wasn't one hiding in there. Not in light of weird old Klaus's cryptic syllables. I stepped through the door like I was stepping into a bear cave. The beam of my flashlight cut a feeble ray in that void, and the relative quiet of the hall outside was replaced by a yawning hush. I suddenly felt like I understood what it might be like to be shot out of a spaceship and into the cold terror of the universe. I heard a gagging noise, a huffing and a grunting, and immediately I regretted every single science fiction movie or television show I'd ever watched. 
Hello? I called. The gagging and grunting got louder, and I fought the urge to run. I'm the one who had the gun, I kept reminding myself. The gun and a full year of experience hunting and killing and surviving situations exactly like the one I was in. How horrible would that be, I thought, to make it all the way through, only to be killed at the very end. Killed after we defeated the bad guys. It had to have happened, though, right? Those are the deaths that never made the history books. The splinters that ended up gangrene, the rotten tooth that turned into an infection, the forgotten tentacle monster that didn't know the war was over. I inched forward until I was about 40 feet in, standing around where the basketball hoop should have been. The gagging got louder, more desperate. I ain't in the mood for this, I yelled. Help! It was a raspy help, the sound that counted like a windpipe slowly being crushed, and it was right above me. I shined my light my gun straight up. A pair of feet dangled in the air, kicking and pedaling. I took a single step out toward the middle of the court, and there swung Frankie, hanging from a noose. She was clawing at the rope, trying to pull it away from her throat, but it didn't seem to help none. I jammed my gun in my pocket and ran underneath to try and help. Maybe I could push up on her feet and relieve the pressure, but I was too short, and she was too short, and my arms wouldn't reach. Klaus was a dark form in the dark door. I shined the light on him. Klaus, go get someone, I yelled. He didn't move. Klaus, I want to go home. I guess I had my walkie-talkie, but I was in a panic. The first thing to go in stressful situations and all that. So instead of calling for help, I looked around for something. Something I could use to get higher up. There had to be a piece of equipment or a bench or (gasps) the weight room. I ran in, found a standalone bench and hauled it back out into the hardwood. Don't you worry, Frankie, I cried as I plunked it down. I got up on it and found her feet. I got you, I got you. I pushed up but I didn't feel any weight. She must have been bending her knees. You gotta stand on my shoulders, Frankie, come on. Amanda, it was Alani. Alani, help, she's hanging from the hoop. I kept pushing up on Frankie's legs, but she wouldn't lock her legs. Alani shined her light over my head. Amanda, don't just stand there. Amanda, stop, but... Alani grabbed my belt and pulled me off the bench. What the hell, Alani, Frankie's... She pointed her flashlight in the air where I had just been. Look! I did. Nobody was there. But... What's going on, Amanda? It it was Frankie. I, I... Amanda, nobody's there. Where's Klaus? What? You didn't see him? I pointed my flashlight at the door, but he was gone. No, Alani said. Isn't he... He was right there. He told me something was wrong, and he pointed in here, and Frankie... Alani took her walkie-talkie off her belt and spoke into it. Frankie, are you there? She waited. Frankie, come in. Still nothing. Fr- what? It was Frankie's voice, all right. I'm just checking in to see if you're alive. And kicking. What's going on in your end? Looking for Burroughs. Uh, I'll check back soon. Got it. Alani, I swear she was up there, I said. And Klaus was out there. It's okay, I believe you. You do? Yeah, come on, let's find Burroughs. It didn't take long. He was crumpled up at the end of the hall that led to the auxiliary gym with a bullet in his brain. His gun wasn't nowhere in sight. We found Klaus sitting in the office with his back to us. He was playing with something in his lap. I took a single cautious step in. Alani positioned herself in the jam. Hey, Klaus, I said. What you got there? He held it up and twirled it around on his finger. It was Burroughs' gun. Alani hissed and drew her weapon. I took a step back. Toy, Klaus said, smiling. Jeez Louise, Klaus, where'd you get that? The man. Burroughs? 
The man. He hunched back over and continued flipping the gun in his hands. I exchanged a look with Alani. Klaus, you know that's a gun, right? I asked. Toy. No. Gun. Gun toy. Klaus, I think you need to give that to me before someone gets hurt. No. Seriously, Klaus, I don't think you know how to. He twisted quick as a fox and pointed it right at me. Pow, pow! If I hadn't done all I'd done, seen all I seen, killed all I killed, and if my belly was full and my bladder fuller, I might have soiled myself. I did freeze, though. Closed my eyes. I ain't proud of it, but it happened. How else is someone supposed to act when a weirdo like Klaus pulled a stunt like that? I exhaled when I realized nothing happened. That my face or my chest or my neck or my stomach or some other important part of my anatomy hadn't painted the wall a bright shade of red. Klaus had gone back to playing with the gun in his lap again, and Alani, who was now beside me, her own gun pointed at his head, said, Amanda, yeah, okay. We barricaded him in using whatever furniture we could find that hadn't already been scavenged or repurposed. The copiers were heavy, and the mobile chalkboards were good to jam up under the knob. We backed it all up with my special couch and a couple of pieces of cargo furniture. Then we went to break the news to the others. The next morning, I stood in the parking lot staring up at the flagpole. A tattered American flag flapped in the breeze above the flag of Virginia, and below them both swung Klaus. A crow called in the distance. The rope we used as a noose bit into his neck, and I wondered aloud if we left him up there too long whether he'd cut his head off. We'll fix it when it happens, Alani said. Good. I want to give him a proper burial. That's not what I meant. I gave her an astonished look. People need to know, Amanda, not to mess with us. She looked up at him one more time and shook her head. I couldn't tell if she was angry or sad or disgusted. Then she walked back into the school. I stayed out there for a little while longer. Part of me wanted to cut the rope and bring him down right then and there without nobody knowing, drag him out into the woods and bury him somewhere they'd never find him. I didn't want to be the kind of person who would do something as terrible as what Alani had implied. I don't want to live in a place where kids saw something like that and thought it was normal. In the end, I didn't do nothing. I knew that no matter how honest and moral and kind I wanted to be, convictions like those were a luxury, a thing of the past. Maybe someday we'd get comfortable enough to think of the world in those kinds of quaint terms, but it wouldn't be any time soon. So I left him up there. I walked back into the school, the nail of the snap hook clanging behind me.
to protect it I will sacrifice it all I will strive I will fight I will die Hey, hey, thank you for tuning in to the Mad Tales podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's chapter. If you cannot wait until next week to finish the story, you can always buy it in ebook and paperback form from Amazon.com, or you can buy it directly from me, both in ebook and in paperback, a signed paperback nonetheless, uh, from my website, www.jamesnoll.net. That's www.jamesnoll.net. And if you would love to support me on Patreon, I would love you to support me on Patreon. I'm offering all kinds of cool extras, including access to bonus material, uh, the ebooks released one week at a time, the chapter at a time, uh, customized short stories. And if I can build enough of a following, I want to film a live action version of Make the Hive Great Again, one of my favorite chapters from the Hive. It's uh, at the end of the first season. It's the very last chapter of the of the first season. That would be an awesome thing to do. So if you want to visit my Patreon page, it's www.patreon.com slash madtails. That would be fantastic. And I will see you guys next week.